Um, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11 through 15. I'm going to read that. Uh, the notes are available on the, on the blog, and you're welcome to follow along there with me. If you have that sort of device, and you're always welcome to print them out if you want to, obviously, and bring them with you um, if you go visit before you come. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11 through 15. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. All systems of thought have a meta-narrative that is a larger story that determines meaning and action on the part of that meta-narrative's adherence. Naturalism and atheism's religion of evolution has a meta-narrative. These competing meta-narratives answer questions. One central question that must be answered by any system is... Who is mankind? Notice that even how that question is asked has implications. What if I ask the question, what is mankind? What's the difference? Do you notice the difference? Who versus what? Who implies that mankind has being that goes deeper into their identity than what? What implies they are a thing? Who implies they are a person? I would even say it implies they are more complex than biological entities having some part of their nature that is non-tangible and transcendent, if you will. Illustration. When my boys bring in a stick, and if you go into their rooms and look behind their doors, you're liable to find anywhere from 10 to 20 different sticks on any given day that they sneak in because I don't want sticks in the house. I'm fine with sticks. I just don't want constant cleanup from the bark off of sticks. And boys being boys, that doesn't always happen. But when they bring in a stick, using it as a makeshift sword or gun, I ask the question out of curiosity, what is that? But when they talk about a friend here at school or introduce me to a buddy, I may ask the young man, who are you? Why? Well, they're both nouns. Stick, person. But one has personhood and the other does not. Therefore, I designate a different word in my question based upon my evaluation of that hopefully very obvious fact. The boy is highly distinct and has a different function than the stick. When we come to answer the question, who is mankind? We have to answer that question with our meta-narrative contained in the Bible. To give you some, some of that, let's just, let's just take off on it from the beginning. Man is first a creature created by the God of the Bible. Man is the highest creature. He's the pinnacle of created order. 
distinguished by being created in the image of his creator. Notice I didn't say its creator. His creator. Man has a role. And that is not just to evolve to his highest state, but that role is to manage creation and fill the earth with other image bearers. Mankind has a purpose, a vision for existence. Man was given a helper out of himself. Not the dirt. Equal in image bearing and importance, but a helper to assist him in stewarding creation and filling it with other image bearers. What a great job. Mankind then was made male and female, each with their own uniqueness and created function that is different. The Lord said a helper fit for Adam, although equally image bearing. Mankind, particularly Eve, however, rebelled against the Lord, the triune God of the Bible, and suffered the consequences of such a rebellion. And so mankind's consequences of rebellion include, and this is a little out of order, the man would have to face difficulty in subduing creation. Genesis 3.17. This is why it's hard to work. Work doesn't come easy. It's because it was cursed. Yet it doesn't change our created function to be a creator and subdue creation. The woman would also then face difficulty in bearing children. Unique to woman and perhaps even metaphorical for facing difficulty in maintaining womanhood as a proper and distinct quality from manhood. And this is difficult to maintain, this distinction, because we've seen in the text of Genesis 3.16 that now her desire would be for the position of her husband. So therefore, rebellion injected enmity in what was supposed to be harmony. And in mankind, male and females, distinct and created function with distinct roles, yet equally image bearers. And yet, due to the rebellion, difficulty would be had in fulfilling those roles. From before the foundation of the world... And realized in the garden, the God of the Bible began the work of redeeming rebellious creatures. And the creation that was subjected to futility from its fallen state. In the fullness of time, the second person of this Trinitarian God comes and he takes on flesh and dies in the place of us rebels. And he rises from the dead to secure their salvation from this difficult existence. And not just salvation from this difficult existence, but the repair of his created order that was broken from the rebellion. This Jesus establishes his church as the beachhead, if you will. The outpost or the advancing force of the re-establishment of his rule in Eden and his good order in Eden. This Jesus sets out to retake Narnia, so to speak. However, Narnia has been under the spell of the contrary ruler who is contrary to the king's order. It's always winter and never Christmas. And the reestablishment of Jesus' rule will take work and clear instruction and serious intentionality because the king's good order 
is opposed by the forces of disorder disguised as freedom and liberty and equality without distinction. And to bring this little introduction back down into our context, the church at Ephesus is an outpost. It's a beachhead in this Roman Empire. It's a force for advancing the reestablishment of Jesus' rule. And Paul has written so that these folks would know how, as we saw all the way back many weeks ago in the introduction in chapter 3, verse 14 to 16, so that they would know how they ought to conduct themselves as citizens of God's kingdom in the church, which he says is a pillar and buttress of the truth. So do you think the church should operate according to the standards and orders of God's kingdom if it is a pillar and buttress of the truth? Yeah, of course. In God's kingdom, the preservation of good order, particularly in our text today, womanhood, is absolutely vital. The church is a pillar and buttress of the truth. Therefore, the church must be about the work of preserving and restoring the good order of mankind. Man, Adam, was appointed to lead. Therefore, in the church, men must lead. It is the result of the rebellion for men to be passive and relinquish their leadership to their brides. It's not how God made it. And our wives, women's sinful tendency from the fall is to take that leadership role from the man. How sad when men give it up and sit under the doctrinal instruction of the women. Contextually, our passage precedes instruction on the church in Ephesus and the eldership of the church. And it's part of the previous passage that we dealt with last week regarding prayer and hindrances to prayer. Men not being in unity and women seeking approval by their external means. Therefore, in light of the purpose of 1 Timothy in chapter 3, verse 14 to 16, Paul is seeking to preserve the good order of God's kingdom. If you're following along in the notes, I have this underlined and italicized. Prohibition is for the sake of preservation. Prohibition is for the sake of preservation. Which is so side note, okay? Because I'm about to give you an illustration from just home life here. It's easy in our fallen state to view prohibition as somehow being hindered. As opposed to being a means of preserving. And what we must understand when scripture prohibits, it's not to hinder joy, but to maximize joy. Because the wages of rebellion is, you ought to know that, the wages of sin is, right? I prohibit my sons from being passive and from passive activities on purpose in order to preserve their manhood and leadership in them. I don't prohibit them just so that I can be mean or to make life miserable. I want them to be leaders 
as they are supposed to be. I don't put them in activities that put them in the position to respond to stimulus. I put them in activities that cause them to be proactive in setting the stimulus. Just an FYI. I'm good at Madden. All right, I'm Mr. Bill Stein. Not against it. Be careful in letting your boy sit in front of audiovisual technology that puts him in a position of response all the time because they learn to respond rather than initiate. Just think it through. It's not wrong. It's fun. I'm a fan. I need the new Madden. If anybody loves me, feel free to pass it on. But that can't become their dominant position of just responding because they are to initiate. They're leaders, not responders. And so I prohibit time in front of that, not because it's not fun, but because I want them outside finding sticks to kill bad guys with. I want them setting the pace. I want them leading the charge. And it's not for hindrance, it's to preserve. I want to make leaders Not couch potatoes. It's not because I'm trying to withhold good from them, but I'm seeking to give them what is best. I'm seeking to preserve the ability in them to lead. In our text today, the sphere of this preservation is the church. And by implication, the Christian home should be a place where us men lead and instruct in good order. And the church should be a beneficiary of this male leadership. Men, we have to lead our home. It's the job of qualified men to lead the church and thus preserve womanhood. And that's what we're doing when we lead is we're preserving this precious gift of womanhood. Side note here, what does it say about a fellowship's men when they cannot produce from within qualified men to take the role of pastor, elder, overseer and have to seek that from outside? Paul And we'll see this next week. The instruction all through the New Testament is go appoint elders. Not from the outside, but from within the fellowship. Don't go vote on some elders. Don't go look at a guy's resume and bring him in from the outside. But go to the fellowship and appoint men who are qualified. What happens when you can't do that from within? It's not pretty. That that should make all men stand up and go, by God. Mm-hmm. Make sure I am that guy. So let's take a look at what instructions Paul gives the church at Ephesus. And us today at Three Rivers about reestablishing his good order through the church, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Let me be clear. This good order is established here. What we hope to do is continue to advance. As the Lord would advance it, this good order in building the church both local and global. So let's take a look at three very large points, and then we'll draw it down with a little conclusion, okay? Number one, men are to fill the role of pastor, elder, overseer. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, rather, she is to remain quiet. Men are to fill the role of pastor, elder, overseer. Due to the context of the passage, Paul is setting out the good order of God's kingdom in the church. 
He's about to give instruction on leadership of the body of Christ. And so there is no mistake on the good order of God's church. He leaves the discussion about how women are to engage in effective prayer and lays out the order and place for the daughters of Eve. First, let's note some very creative ways folks have sought to continue the rebellion in the garden against God's good order by rejecting this instruction. I want to give you three. There's like seven. And as I was, I have seven pages of notes, at least in a Word document. And I thought I need to cut some of these out because it will be forever. So let me just give you some creative ways. Historically, people have tried to bypass this passage. You notice, I, we were laughing earlier this morning that we just laid on you two very difficult passages out of the Bible today. And you know, that's okay. We don't run from hard passages. We exegete them. We deal with them. And we proclaim them. That's fun. That makes me happy. I love that. You're like, I don't know about that. I love this. This is good for us. It's good for us. Seals don't decry their training when they're in combat. They're thankful for it. When we're at war advancing the kingdom, we become thankful for these passages. First argument that is often made is that Paul is just wrong. Some have said that Paul is wrong because his teaching is appealing to mythical accounts and rabbinical misinterpretations of Genesis 2. Uh, the particular man, unless you think I'm making this up, is Paul K. Jewett. J-E-W-E-T-T, Paul K. Jewett. And he wrote a book called Man is Male and Female, 1975. He's a professor at Fuller Seminary in Pasadena, California. He made this assertion. And by the way, Fuller, which is a very good school, my wife was actually given a full ride to Fuller in their counseling department, and she turned it down to go to my graduate school so we could stay together. Thank you, God. <laughs> um, Fuller is not a left-leaning theological institution. And Dr. Jewett was censured for his assertion that Paul was just wrong. Paul was wrong. A second assertion is that some have argued that Ephesus was a bastion of feminist supremacy. And the only problem with that is Roman history shows Ephesus to be a very conventional Roman provincial city with no women magistrates and a cult hierarchy that was controlled by men. The third and final one I'm going to give you, and this is a little nerdy and I apologize, but it, it sort of it kind of drives home the point of at least trying to deal with the text. Some say that Paul said, I do not permit, when he said, I do not permit, that he used the indicative and not the imperative. Follow me here. And therefore is not issuing a command, but rather a temporary argument. However, students of Paul often discover that Paul uses indicatives to give universal instruction. Example would be Romans 12.1. Therefore I urge you, brothers, by the mercies of God, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. It's in the indicative. When you read the book of Romans, it becomes very clear that is the instruction to the church. So you can't say because it's not in the imperative, it's not a command and therefore a temporary instruction. And to drive the point home even further, Paul goes on to clarify his argument by appealing to created order as the ground of his instruction. He doesn't make a cultural argument. So what does Paul mean here? What does Paul mean? The word to teach... And its noun forms, teaching and teacher, are used in the New Testament to describe the work of the pastor, elder, overseer in teaching the authority of the Scripture and public doctrinal instruction. 1 Timothy 4.11, you're going to see it again. 2 Timothy 3.16, 2 Timothy 4.2. 2 
So what is prohibited is preaching and the teaching elder role of authoritatively defining and expositing the deposit of the apostles into the church. 1 Timothy 3.2 And our text is also clear that attitude is important. She must learn in quietness and full submission. And this prohibits an argumentative attitude. Therefore, this role is preserved for the man as the role of leader. But let's be clear. If we haven't been so far, this is not prohibiting to keep womanhood down. Rather, this is prohibiting in order to preserve God's good order of womanhood. And this becomes clear when we get to verse 15, if not already. Therefore, this role is preserved for the man as the role of leader. This is not prohibiting to keep women down. This is prohibiting in order to preserve this glorious order. Six evidences, very quickly, before we move on to point number two. That men, your role as men, sons of Adam, is to lead and preserve womanhood. One, God created Adam first, then Eve. God gave the command not to eat of the tree to Adam not Eve. Three, Adam named the woman who was taken from him just as he named the other creatures signifying his authority as the namer. Four, Eve is designated as Adam's helper. By the way, guys, you look for a wife. Don't think that's not important. You know what God does to to Christian men? He gives you a helper because you stink on your own. We all have about two things we do well. And you know what God's done for us? He's given us a lady who does everything we don't do well really good. Thank you. Glory. Listen. Don't. Listen. This is not my notes, but (laughs) hot is good. (laughs) Hot is good, but helper is better. Because we all hit 40 and everything quits working. And if it doesn't stop working at 40, it will at 50. It doesn't at 50, it will at 60. If not at 60, it will at 70. But at some point... Heat diminishes and helper is such of a superior, precious gift. Ladies, God's good order is for your good, not your holding down. Five, the serpent deceived Eve rather than Adam, thereby subverting male headship. If Satan subverted male headship, and that's what he did, right? It's clear. Satan didn't go to Adam. He didn't go to the head. He went to the helper. And if Satan subverted male leadership, shouldn't we be alert and watch for this subversion? I mean, is that just stupid or what? Yes, we should be on alert for this subversion. God came to Adam 
after this was all over, point number six here and seeing this order, God came to Adam for accountability even though Eve sinned first. God didn't come to Eve and go, Eve, what are you doing? He went to Adam and said, dude, what's up? Your helper's over here having a conversation with Satan. And by the way, Adam wasn't off on a journey. He was right there watching, being quiet as she was deceived. So God gave this role of leadership to the men. So men, take that seriously. Don't let the evil one subvert your leadership. Two, God's good order is a creation issue, not a cultural adaptation. Verse 13 and 14, For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. I suppose the question many may ask is regarding whether this prohibition is still in effect today. Many contended that Paul's prohibition from women serving as pastors was due to them being uneducated and therefore not able to teach well, and therefore they were the ones responsible for the false teaching that Paul has instructed Timothy to deal with. Attempts to root Paul's prohibition and cultural norms for the day fall very short. Because Paul could have written this. I don't want women to teach or exercise authority over men because they are uneducated. Or he could have said, I don't want women to teach or exercise authority over men because they are spreading false teaching. As a matter of fact, the ones propagating the false teaching were who? Men. So that's obviously not the case. Paul appeals to created order. To God's good and perfect intention when he formed humans in his image before the fall. This order is not post-fall, it's pre-fall. Which is why if you looked at the little title, I said preserving God's good order. This order isn't post-fall chaos, it's pre-fall beauty. It's pre-fall glory. And we must see that distinction in created purpose is not cultural. Rather, it's created and intentional. A little quote for you here. It is imperative to see that the reference to creation indicates that the command for women not to teach or exercise authority over men is a transcultural word. A prohibition that is binding on the church at all times and all places. That's Thomas Schreiner, prophet, Southern Seminary. Paul grounds his prohibition in created order to preserve the good order in the creation accounts of Genesis. Side note for you. I'm good at side notes. It's another way to say rabbit trail. But I wrote it in on purpose to keep me on track. As a side note, the grounding of current order in the narrative of Genesis implies that Adam and Eve are not mythological people that serve as story only, but rather in a real and historical event called creation that dictates to the modern reader of the biblical text that the narratives of the Bible are true and do not affirm anything contrary to fact and must be the ground of our practice. take it a step further, Paul gives another reason that the women must not teach or exercise authority over the men, and that is that Eve was deceived and became a transgressor. The point is not that women are given more to sin than men. That's not the point. That's not true. Paul will tell us in Titus 2-3, the women are to teach women, right? But the older women teach the younger women, right? You know your Bible? Right. First, 2 Timothy 1, 5 and 2 Timothy 3, 14 and 15, the women were to teach other women and teach the children. Which Paul wouldn't do if the women were more prone to sin than men. 
Paul's point is that Satan's temptation of Eve instead of Adam subverted male leadership. Satan came after Eve in spite of Adam's presence as it was happening. And if you are married, you know that. You've tasted that. It's invaded your home probably multiple times a day. It is constant work being a husband, isn't it, men? And if you're unaware of that, you're not being one. It is serious business to recognize the work of the evil one coming after your wife's emotive and mental status. Be on alert. He prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And if he didn't come at Adam in the garden pre-fall, do you think his tactics are going to shift now? No! This spiritual war is real. And the reestablishing of God's kingdom and His order in Narnia is real. And even though Eve was deceived and rebelled, God calls Adam to account. And man's sinfulness is traced to Adam. Romans 5, 12-19, not Eve. Therefore, to preserve the good order of the kingdom, the Father prohibits the daughters of Eve from taking the role of the man because it would be to follow after the original deception and sin and to give in to the fallen tendency, the fall is introduced into the good order of creation. Part of the function of the church is to bring the values of God's kingdom to bear on the fallen world and truly, truly liberate image bearers through the preaching of the gospel, their belief in and transformation by the gospel, an expositional doctrinal instruction. We do the gospel nor ourselves any favors by giving up key values that the Father holds in order to gain acceptance from those who are weeds rather than wheat. We're to fight for the preservation of our wives and our daughters by holding to God's good order. Point number three. We are to preserve womanhood through observing God's good order. We're to preserve womanhood through observing, that is, obeying, practicing God's good order. Verse 15, the first part of it. She will be saved, yet she will be saved through childbearing. Paul's use of the word childbearing here is not so clear on the surface. What about women who've died in childbirth? What about... Women who have been unable to conceive. What about single women? Paul's most likely referencing childbearing because of its universal example of God-given differences in the role of men and women. I think that's pretty clear. Unless you as a dude have given birth to a child, it is a very clear distinction between us, is it not? I do not want to birth children. Thank you, Jesus. I believe what Paul has in mind here is that womanhood and God's good order are saved, listen to this carefully, through being distinctly what Father made woman to be rather than seeking to be what the Father made men to be. Let's say that again. I believe what Paul has in mind here is that womanhood and God's good order are saved 
through being distinctly what Father made woman to be rather than seeking to be what the Father made men to be. I also believe that Paul could have in mind by not seeking the role of the men, women are more likely to have a heart attitude that attends salvation and all its blessings. That's what he says. They will be saved through being distinctly woman. That means that women who seek their proper good function are in an attitude reminiscent of women who are following Jesus Christ. The opposite of that could be true as well, that women who seek the role of the head are an attitude of women reminiscent of those seeking to propagate the lie in the garden all over again. Paul's wording is intentional. Feminism is such a soothing poison. It's a lie. And the lie propagated by feminism is that distinction is somehow less than. And no doubt, unregenerate, foolish men have done no favors to the idea of distinction and submitting to authority. And they should be chokeslammed. Have a higher standard for us men. <laughs> Submission as a word in our culture carries a positive stigma, right? Wrong. Submission as a word generally carries a negative stigma. However, submission is not negative. Listen, its roots are in Trinity. It's a God characteristic. John 5, 19, Jesus did whatever the heck He wanted. Right? No. Jesus said the Son of Man does not operate on His own authority, but He does only what He sees the Father doing. Jesus submitted to the Father. Was He less than? No. Was he equal to? Yes. Did he have a different function? Yes. Jesus submitted to the Father. The Spirit. Does he do whatever the heck he wants? Does he run rampant? Causing chaos and disorder? No. John 14 to 16. He highlights, lifts up Jesus. If he ever draws attention to himself, it's Satan. It's demons, not Holy Spirit. He draws attention to the Son. He submits to what the Son says. He reminds us of what the Son has said. Holy Spirit submits to the Son. Father lovingly shows off the Son and the Spirit. That each member of the Trinity is equal in deity and importance, yet distinct in function and specific in submission to the other members of the Trinity. This is the image we're created in. It's not negative. It's glorifying to God. It shows off Trinitarian reality. There is an innate living proclamation of the gospel in it. And if we don't live it, we're denying the gospel. We become Unitarians. If you're a Unitarian, you're not a Christian. Trinitarian belief is distinct to Christianity. And so it's not negative, it's holy. There's no one in the faith who shouldn't be submitted to someone else. There's no Pope. There's no great high priest except Jesus. And we're all equally vital yet distinct in our created functions. And that is holy and good. And I'm going to tell you, it brings great joy. 
I don't want to be the man. I'm not the man. I do about like 0.5 things well. And, and what we find is man, this is awesome. God made us all differently, didn't He? So even inside manhood, we submit to one another with varying gifts because they do things better than each of us. And we work together for common goals, right? Right, absolutely. So therefore, submission is not a negative thing, it's a glorious thing. This is how we, inside the kingdom, what did Paul tell Timothy? Chapter 3, verse 14. I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is a church, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Of all the places where the truth ought to emanate in word and in deed, where should it happen from? In the church. This is how submission must be understood by Christians. And as a result, practiced in the home and in the church. Some men have even tried to take the concept of submission and say that men ought to do everything inside the home. And that's how he exerts his leading of the home. That also is foolish. A leader recognizes strengths in other people and allows those people to operate in their strengths so that they are get they get highlighted in what they do well. Don't go beyond what the Scripture says. Obey what the Scripture says, right? A good leader of his home equips his wife to go Proverbs 31 and he talks about her in the gate and he speaks of her glory and how good she is and how marvelous she is and how womanly she is. And that's a bad woman in Proverbs 31. Yeah, she's bad to the bone, right? She gets it done. She's not weak. She's strong. And she sets a pace in the home. She rises early. She stays up late. She gets it done. And that's Jennifer Jolly. She does her job well. And I speak of her publicly because that's how bad she is. And I say bad is good. <laughs> Understand that. And so that's submission. That's submission. As Adam stood passively by and watched Satan berate his bride with the lie that Father's holding out on us, he allowed the good order of creation to be subverted. And equality and distinction and submission have been under attack ever since. I would argue one of the greatest challenges we have in the church is to combat the idea of a lack of distinction in humanity. Equality and distinction. We've talked about it. We've talked about fellowship. Unity and distinction. As men, we must take up the mantle of leadership to make sure we preserve the good order of creation. And the good order of the coming kingdom. This is not male domination for the sake of some evil agenda. Any man who dominates in sinful harshness using God as his excuse sins. A man must lead under Christ-like love. Ephesians 5. This passion and pursuit is part of what it means to be masculine. 
little quote from Piper and Grudem in a great book called Biblical Manhood, Biblical Womanhood. You should read it. He says, at the heart of mature masculinity is a sense of benevolent responsibility to lead, provide for, and protect women in ways appropriate to man's differing relationships. There are seasons when your wife will need more protection. There are seasons when she needs less. And it's your job, men, to know when those are and to make sure it happens. I might be able to jump out of my tree stand and break a deer's neck and gnaw him to death, but if I can't lead my wife in the right seasons of life, I fail to be masculine. I'm not jumping out of my tree stand on no deer. I can guarantee you that. That's why I shoot it. <laughs> we propagate wrong and disorder if we don't uphold distinction inside equality between men and women, and particularly inside the church that is a pillar and buttress of the truth. So how are women and men to fight for this good order? This is where we'll start to, to, to wrap this bad boy up. The answer is in the second part of verse 15. Should we say through childbearing? Here's the second part. If they, and that's speaking about women, I think it's neat, and I didn't put this in my notes, and I'm totally just, I don't know if I should do this or not. And she will be saved through childbearing if they, he didn't say if she again. And I think that shift in pronoun is, is vital. Because he's not talking about specific women in the church. Because remember it's the men who are propagating false teaching. Hymenaeus and Alexander who've been handed over to, be, to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. He shifts the pronoun from she to they. Indicating this is the preservation of womanhood as a created role. Not a particular lady he has in mind. If they, that is, if womanhood, women continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. So how do we help our ladies and ladies? How do we fight for this good order? Well, first he says we continue in faith. Hebrews eleven six. I know it by heart. And without faith it is impossible to please God. We must fight for faith that the Father is good and working for our good and that His Word is truth. Paul tells the church at Ephesus, remember this is Timothy's written the church at Ephesus, Ephesians chapter 6, to take the shield of faith to extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one. Why? Because Satan's darts are doubts. Therefore, those doubts are extinguished with faith. 1 Thessalonians 3, 5, Paul writes to find out about this young church's faith for fear that somehow Satan had tempted them. What's the temptation? The temptation is to no longer believe. Satan comes after your faith. When you are doubting it's not Holy Spirit, it is Satan. God is clear. Satan is not. If somehow we give in to the cultural, political, and satanic pressure to cave on God's good order, we quit the fight. We give up the faith. And Paul says here in the church that is a pillar and a buttress of the truth, we fight for this good order by maintaining trust that this order is good. In spite of what our culture may say to us. 
Two, love of God and love of his order. Love of God and love of his order. He says faith and love. Well, just love in general, like I love Fuddruckers. I do, but not that kind of love. I love to have a pounder with Chipotle barbecue sauce and cheese and onion rings. Big Dr. Pepper. Not that kind of love, maybe, but this kind of love. The love of God and love of His order. We can fight for Father's good order by loving Him and loving His order. If we really love God, we must fight against the lie that somehow He's holding out on us. Isn't that, this is what Satan did in the garden. He knows that you'll be like Him, knowing good and evil. So just rebel against Him. Right? We have to fight against the lie that somehow God's holding out on us. We must believe that His good order is good and good for me and that that order is to be loved and I would argue enjoyed. I have a hard time imagining some of these guys that I see on television sitting under the lady dominating him and instructing him. That makes my skin crawl. Just watch television. Like I watch Christian programming periodically so that I can get a appropriate amount of anger built up it's good for lifting weights get fired i don't need like acdc which i do like to listen to when i'm working out sorry somebody did a science project on that this year i'm pretty excited about that one the effect of rock music on lifting weights i can't wait to see the results of that because i guarantee you that helps you lift more weight amen that's right i would argue i would argue that we're to enjoy that good order. That it brings immense pleasure. Men, leading will make you happy. It will fulfill your heart's desire. Ladies, helping him subdue the earth will make you happy. The desire to take the role of head over the man is a broken and sinful tendency and we can't give into it. He says here another way we preserve this is holiness. We seek to be like Christ. We seek to be like Jesus. What did Jesus do? Jesus obeyed the Father's good order inside the Trinity. Likewise, we obey the Father's good order. We seek holiness. Four, self-control. This goes two ways, men. You have to, you have to exercise self-control to get up and, and roll. Ladies, we have to exercise self-control in order to let them lead. And he may make lots of mistakes. We will. We do. But we must exercise self-control. And we have Holy Spirit that gives us the fruit of self-control. So it's Possible. Possible. Fourth point, and it's the concluding thing, is we worship. We worship. We worship. What do they do? What do they do every time they take back another piece of Narnia? There's some kind of party. There's some kind of good thing. Right? What we see in Scripture, what happens when God's people worship? 
The Spirit speaks to God's people. He brings unity. He brings great things when people worship. When we worship together in the public gathering of the body of Christ, we enter into a submissive state where we all come together to sing to and hear from and be led by the triune God of the universe. When we worship, we're in a, submitted, we're in a submissive state of admitting He is above and we are below. But that this submission is good and Father is good. When we worship, we're open to His leadership and we are made ready to do His good will. When we do His good will, He abides with us still and with all who will trust and obey. What a great old hymn. When we are ready to do His good will, we are empowered to bring the good order of His kingdom to bear on our world. So I invite you this morning, come and worship the King in song together and let's go and live out this good and joyful order.